Good morning, again. I got the welcome out of the way. That's the most nerve-wracking part, because I don't ever do it, you know. So, and if I make mistakes, I will hear about it. Not really. But this morning, we begin our summer sermon series. And we're going to begin a journey through probably the most influential book in Western civilization. It's not been a bestseller over the last 10 years. Do you know what those are? What they've been? Well, according to Nielsen Bookscan, the best-selling books over the last 10 years, I'm embarrassed to say it, it's the Fifty Shades of Grey series. <laughs> Followed by The Hunger Games and The Help. But we are not choosing our, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Our series based on recent book sales, okay? Uh, but we are, we are choosing it based on its influence. Probably the most influential book or influential letter that's ever been written is the letter Paul wrote to the church in Rome. It was written by Paul in about the late 50s, so some 30 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we chronicled very carefully and thoroughly in the book of Matthew. What's happened to the kingdom movement since that point? Once Jesus handed the leadership over to those 11 disciples, what happened to it? It's been a bit of a rough road, actually. And there are issues which need to be addressed within those churches that were founded. The letter to the Romans was written from the tiny port town of Sancrea. It's about five miles east of Corinth, right on the Aegean Sea. The letter is written and delivered to Rome, the capital of the empire, some 750 miles to the west of Sancrea. This is the most important of Paul's letters. And once you hear we're going to study Romans, some of you probably moaned a little bit because, oh, it's so much theology. It is his most read book, but I think in some level it's also one of his most understood books, misunderstood books. Because usually when we read the book of Romans, where do we spend the bulk of our time? In chapters 1 through 8, in the theology, maybe 9 through 11 too. And so we want to explore that, that rich theology, but there is more to theology in the, than in the book of Romans than just the theology. He writes this letter to this church in Rome, which is essentially a collection of house churches. But why? Why did he sense the need to write to these churches? And it's a letter to believers. It's not a letter to unbelievers. So its intention wasn't to provide for us, you know, the Romans road. That wasn't his intention. I think something else is going on in the book of Romans, and I would say something pastoral. Something relational is going on in Romans. And what could that be? Well, Paul intended the people of the, who lived in Rome to read the book from chapter 1 through chapter 16 in order. But I wonder if 2,000 years later, if that's really the way we should read the book. What do you know about the church in Rome? What kind of buildings did they have? Where did they meet? What were their struggles in 57 and 58 AD? How many churches were there? How big were they? Where did they meet? 
When we read the book of Romans from front to back, we never answer those questions. And we conclude that the book is an abstract and a systematic theology of the gospel without much pastoral care. If we invest our energy up front on the theological first half and then we skim the rest, have we really done it justice? What if we put the letter into its context? I mean, we looked at Matthew and we kept hammering up the importance of context, which is important in Matthew. Why isn't it important in, in the book of Romans? And so this morning, I want to whet your appetite for what's to come. And to be honest, I don't really know what's to come. We are on a road trip this summer, and we're just going to go and see where it leads. So to set the stage for that, I want to ask three questions this morning. Number one, why study the book of Romans right now? Number two, how is it best to study the book of Romans? And number three, who's the most important figure in the book of Romans? Might be a surprising answer there. But number one, then, why study Romans now? I think there's two reasons why we should tackle it in the summer of 2022. The first reason is this. I think Romans naturally follows after a study in Matthew. We've invested a lot of time in Matthew, so what's next? Matthew only wrote one book. He's not Luke who writes his gospel and then follows it up with the book of Acts with the history of, of what happens after the resurrection. And so in Matthew, you have this, this seed sown of, of some struggle and the difficulties that's going to be coming to, to the church after it's been planted. And they will wrestle with those struggles for generations. We wrestle with their str those struggles even today. How do you experience peace with each other in the midst of an empire? In Matthew, we found Gentiles who recognized Jesus and they begin to follow him. There were wise men, came from a long way away and determined he was worthy of their worship. There's a centurion in, Acts, in, 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 Acts, in Matthew 8 who believes, you know, you don't even have to be near my kid to heal him. Can you heal him? He heals him from a distance. There's a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who expresses such deep faith. Jesus doesn't want to heal her child, but he does. And there's that centurion at the cross in Matthew 27 who says, truly this was the Son of God. This very Jewish of accounts drops hint after hint after hint that the Gentiles are coming to faith. So what happens? You've got these Jewish believers. You've got these Gentile believers. They're very different groups. How does the redemptive plan of God and the kingdom work out in real life? These are not merely racial hurdles. And they're not going to be resolved by the time Paul writes the book of Romans. So to me, this is a perfect letter to pick up the threads that Matthew has so carefully sown. And so a study of Romans, I think, follows naturally after a study in Matthew. The second reason is that Romans exhorts us to live the gospel. We saw it play out in the life of Jesus, but now it's like, oh, if this new redemptive plan is going to flourish, there are some things everybody has to do. There are some things that everybody has to learn. There are some very practical things to learn and do if you're going to follow Jesus. We have to learn to live the gospel. 
not just know the gospel. And to get along with each other, it's going to take some really good theology. Because Paul asked the Romans, are you really living the gospel? The same gospel proclaimed by the Messiah. Paul explains how they can find peace with each other as they live in the Roman Empire. But the letter to Rome is a letter that confronts our contemporary society as well. The letter to Rome is a letter that confronts Peninsula as a church family. Are we finding peace in the midst of an angry culture? Or are we just as angry as our culture? Do we find in our church a unity not found in a divided world? I hope we discover as never before that Romans really is a pastoral epistle. It's about living the gospel. It isn't just about learning the gospel. I'm not convinced that its purpose was to be this theological treatise. And I don't think it was written to define the gospel, but to apply the gospel. And by now, some of you are thinking that I am crazy, and I might be. That's a possibility. And you might not think that I'm right, but my argument is best made if we choose to read the book of Romans backwards. Until you put the book of Romans into its context, where do you find its context? You find its context in Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Until you put Romans into its context of Romans 12 through 16, you're not really going to understand it. Living in a racially divided nation, what does the gospel say to us? How do we maintain our unity in such a climate? How do we interact with people who are in low-paying jobs, hard-working jobs? How do we... How do we relate to people who've come maybe from south of the border, maybe without any papers? Maybe they're sitting next to you. How do you relate to them? How do we display the grace and the love of Jesus in our world? How do we participate in this unfolding plan of the redemption narrative? What do you think about when you hear stories about Northern Ireland and the Republic of, of Ireland? Or when you read books about the genocide in Rwanda? I mean, what does the gospel say in those contexts? You can add any injustice you want to against any group of people. And it becomes, I think, at this point, we have to appreciate the letter Paul wrote to the Romans. And we're going to discover that Paul's theology is an on-the-ground living theology. It's not some abstract teaching. It's not divorced from reality. They had huge problems at the church in Rome. So he wrote them a letter. And until we understand those problems, can we really understand the letter? What does Paul want to accomplish in that church? Well, he wants to accomplish reconciliation. He wants to say... God has reconciled all things to Christ. The believer has been reconciled to Christ. Believers should be reconciled to one another. The Christian is an agent of reconciliation in the world. The kingdom is a new creation, fully reconciled. 
But you only see Paul's big picture message as you read it within its context. You have to understand the on-the-ground reality of those first-century churches, these house churches in Rome. They faced the issue of class, and, and they faced the issue of social standing. Do we face the same issues? Of course we do. They all came from very different classes. And Romans is a theology that preaches to congregations then, and it preaches to congregations today. Paul is a pastor. He is thinking of these local house churches where the strong are supposed to open the doors to the weak, give them a place at the table, and create a fellowship of siblings. See, that's the radical nature of the gospel. Which leads me to the next question. How is it best to study the book of Romans, which I kind of already told you. A better question is, why study Romans backwards? Why are we going to do it that way? And I guess for this to make sense, you need to understand kind of the structure of the book of Romans if you don't really know much about it. There are four parts to the book of Romans. Matthew wrote his book, his gospel, around what? Five different speeches. You know that, right? We're going to review this till I die. There's five speeches he builds his book around. Romans is these four big ideas, these four chapters. Romans 1 through 4, the righteousness of God. Man, God is righteous. Romans 5 through 8, this, this new humanity that the gospel creates. Justification, sanctification, all these big theological stuff. Romans 9 through 11 is God fulfills his, his covenant promises to Israel. And he goes through that. And then Romans 12 through 16, this gospel is supposed to unify the church. 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 to 16, four parts. And the theology is thick until you get to chapter 12. But beginning in chapter 12, we have the context for 1 through 11. We have the setting in which he is able to teach 1 through 11, which the original readers knew very well. But you don't know that so well. I don't know that so well. So I think there's four reasons to start, from, start Romans at the back and then go to the front. First reason is to avoid exhaustion. We study 1 through 8, and we put all of our energy and our time. Maybe we stretch it through chapter 11, and by the time we get to chapter 12, we're exhausted, and we just, let's go through the rest. So we don't unpack the end as carefully as we need to do if we're going to understand the beginning. And I would argue if we don't read the back end first, we may never get to it. And if we never get to it, we're going to read this letter without its context. And it is in its context that it comes alive. Second reason, we want to understand the social reality in Rome. If we don't understand the social realities of Romans 12 through 16, you're not going to be able to understand the context for 1 through 11. You've got to know Paul's desire is to go to Spain. We need to know the names of those people who are leading these house churches in Romans 16. Why? Because those names, if you learn the names, what does it tell you? It tells you that there's a high proportion of slaves in these churches, and there's a lot of women. Hmm. But most importantly, it's in these verses, verses uh, chapter 14 and 15, we meet the weak and the strong. Well, that's for a couple weeks from now, so we'll leave that. But how can you read Romans 
if you ignore the social realities in which the letter was presented. The weak and the strong, they're sitting in church. They're hearing Romans 1.1 for the first time. What are they thinking? How are they responding to this letter? Third reason, to understand the pastoral nature of Romans. It's a pastoral letter. There's a struggling church in Rome. And if you're going to understand this movement, you've got to understand that. And you have to understand it only in light of Romans 12 through 16. This isn't an abstract theological letter, which theology has its place, but it's more than anything, it's a pastor's heart being unfolded to his people. I mean, can you hear his heart? Romans 9, verse 3, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those who are of my race. Pleading for them. Romans 10, verse 1, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. Romans 11, 1, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. This isn't just the work of theology. His heart is there. Fourth reason, so that we could read Romans with fresh eyes. Because once we begin to dig into Romans out of its social context, maybe we'll see some things we didn't notice before. For example, Romans eleven thirteen, he says, I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry. Now, why does Paul say at this point, I'm talking to you Gentiles? Has he been talking to the Jews before this? And now he's kind of... He's looking at the Jews, and now he's looking at the Gentiles? He's been talking to the Jews since about, what, nine, chapter 9, verse 1, where he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I mean, is that for Jewish believers only? I mean, well, you've got to understand what's going on. Because once we read Romans in its social context, the issue of the reconciliation of these two groups at odds with each other. We're going to get to it next week, but a little hint. You do know that the Jews were kicked out of Rome about four or five years before the book of Romans was written. So it was just a Gentile church for four or five years. So what do you think happened? And now they're being let back in. So now what's happening with the dynamic? You see, once we read it with some history and some context, those issues come to the top. But I think we'll also see some, some rhetorical moves. We come to Romans 1 and we get a little shocked, you know. Well, the, the righteousness of God has been revealed and it's, we're shocked by its severe condemnation. It just seems to come out of the blue. Well, what if that's not true? Maybe if it isn't out of the blue. Maybe Paul's using Romans 1 to set us up. Maybe he's using it as a rhetorical device to focus on the Jewish believers through the end of chapter 4. Maybe the same thing's true once you get to chapter 9. He's going to talk about the Jewish believers. And then he changes again in chapter, 13, or chapter 11, verse 13. See, it's, I think the social context brings us an understanding of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, too. What's really going on there? So this summer, we're going to tackle Romans backwards. We're going to start in Romans 16. 
this morning, just the first two verses. Then we're going to move back to chapter 12 and go 12 through 15. Why? Because I, I think we have to understand Rome in 58 AD if we're really going to understand Romans. So we begin with this question, who is the most important figure in the book of Romans? I'm going to argue the most important figure in the book of Romans is a woman, and her name is Phoebe. Romans 16, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, now's a good time to open them. We are using the Bible. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancreia. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her help and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So think about this. Here is Paul, one of the most influential thinkers in, in the history of the church. We often assume him as what? Some male patriarch. And he's just, what does he do here? He asks a wealthy, influential female, Phoebe, not only to deliver his prized letter, but I think to also read it to the churches in Rome. The letters in Paul's world were the embodied, inscripted presence of the letter writer. In this case, they are the presence of Paul in the church in Rome. And he chooses a woman to embody this letter, which means the face of Paul is experienced in Rome by a woman in the face of Phoebe. And before anyone hears the letter to the Romans, they hear what? They meet what? They meet who? They meet Phoebe. We don't know how she got to Rome from Sincrea. She might have went up, you know, the, the Grecian coast and around the top and walked down. She might have gotten on a, on a boat out of Corinth and sailed around, you know, Sicily and on, up the coast, got a boat then at, at the shore in Italy and rode up the Tiber River. It's a dangerous travel either way. Mediterranean sea travel is always dicey. Winds and the weather not favorable to sailors. We don't know how she got there, but she went, with Rome, went to Rome with what? This letter from Paul. And from these two verses, we know four things about this remarkable woman. She is called a sister, first of all. Paul calls her our sister. He uses that term elsewhere about women in, in the New Testament. He's a, she, we do know she's a Gentile convert to Christ. Why? Because Phoebe means Titanus, which is, you know, a Greek god. No good self-respecting Jewish family would name their child after a pagan god or goddess. So she's not Jewish. Paul makes what he means by sister clear in 1 Timothy 5. He writes, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. See, Paul's favorite metaphor for the believers in the first century was their siblings. A sibling is a family that's marked by love and harmony. We forgive one another. But there's also order in a family. There, there is a hierarchy, or there can be. And if the metaphor sister means anything, it means there's a new social reality that's at work among the churches. The, these are house churches throughout the Roman Empire. Because in the Roman world, how are you known? You are known by your status. 
You're known by your connections to a patron or your wealth or your, your prominence in some military battle, and you're always trying to get ahead. The path to glory, it was kind of invisible, but it was also influential. You wanted to be influential in society. And so Paul says once redemption takes place in Christ, this, this quest for special honor in the culture, now it, it takes on a different nuance for the believer. Now it's all about being a sibling. And he uses this word sister, so he creates a new society of siblings. It's supposed to replace this, this power and this privilege so valued by Roman culture. Not that anymore. We're just siblings. Second, she's called a deacon. It refers to a servant. Roman officials are called servants. Jesus is called a servant. Paul and his, his companions were servants. In the church setting, it can have the, the, the idea of the ministry or the office of deacon. Hence, there's qualifications eventually laid down by Paul. It's unclear which direction Paul means it here as he uses the term, but we know she was of service at the church at Sancrea. So she seems to have maybe a more official role. We don't know. But she does have the gifts of leadership and godliness. And the church probably met in her home. She's wealthy. The third thing he says about her, this is, yes, is that she's a benefactor, which means she has the money. She's a woman of wealth and means. It's a popular term in those days. She's a, a benefactor. They, these people would bring honor to the community. They would pay for, like, feasts for the community. They would bring in athletic contests and pay for them. Being a benefactor got you an official position in the local government. And, and so Phoebe, at least some of her wealth, is used for the cause of Christ, if not all of her donations to churches and supporting Paul. Because if you think about it, Paul's kind of busy. He can't have a job the whole time. He spends a lot of time as an apostle praying and studying and pastoring and meeting and talking with people and teaching people. And if you're Paul, there's, you know, time for travel. You've got to carve out some time to spend in jail, too. He was there a lot. And so to get all this done, he, he needs a patron. He needs somebody to support him. And Phoebe's one of them. And he even says that she had been a benefactor of many, not just Paul. Fourth, she's a, she is the letter's courier. They don't meet her as a deacon or a benefactor. They meet her as this, the text says. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. Now, I think there's more here than, than meets the eye. It seems the commendation reveals really that she's the, the bringer, the bearer, the courier of this letter. They didn't just bring a letter and drop it off and say, here, this is from Paul. It's in your mailbox now. Read it sometime. If you read what's going on in, in the extra-biblical literature, sources say that, that a, a courier had some responsibilities. They brought along personal information from Paul, which would have been very important to the church in Rome. Priscilla and Aquila are there now. They knew Paul personally. They probably, she probably even read the letter. She probably did some interpretating, or some interpretation as it went along. She probably had Q&A. I'm sure the book of Romans uh, wrote some, some questions in their minds. But I'm also sure that Paul and his companions, they mentored these people who would read the these letters so that they could present them in such a way that they were lived out theology. How do you read such a letter? I think you do it with great gusto. 
You do it with, with hand motions and gestures. You look at the Jews when you're talking about the Jews. You look at the Gentiles when you're talking about the Gentiles. You look at the sinners when you're talking about the sinners. I'm sure there's a sense in which she's acting out the letter with volume and drama. And I think it's pretty sure to say that, that she practiced this in front of Paul. She might have even, by this point, have it all memorized, and she could just read it or quote it to them. So we begin our summer road trip through Romans by meeting Phoebe, a remarkable woman. Next week, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 16, and we're going to discover it's kind of the, 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 the context of these house churches in Rome. But let me ask a bonus question this morning. You love bonus questions. I know you do. What do I want this letter to do for us this summer? I'm praying that it does two things. Number one, to help us develop unity in a world divided. Our world is divided. Very easily our church could be divided. A church can easily fracture. And to be honest, I really didn't think we, we would experience that until COVID hit. And the rough waters of the pandemic cause a lot of people to find green pastures elsewhere. But you all hang in there because we're family, because we're siblings. But the water remains treacherous, and unity is hard work. In America's Georgia, 1950, an agricultural student from Florida State University visited a place called Koinonia Farms, a, a farm that it was not far from, from, the, from the church he wanted to attend. The student was from India. He said, I've never gone to a Christian worship service. I'd like to go. He was Hindu. So the founder of Koinonia Farms, his name is um, Clarence Jordan, took him to his church, Rehoboth Baptist Church. I don't know how you say that. Rehoboth? No, you don't know either. Somebody would have told me. After worship... The pastor drove to, to Mr. Jordan's home, and he said, you know, Mr. Jordan, you can't come with somebody like that. It causes disunity in our church. And to make a long story short, the church eventually wrote a letter and said, Mr. Jordan, you are no longer welcome in our church because you keep bringing in the wrong kind of people. If you are going to understand the book of Romans... We have to put ourselves in the middle of Rehoboth Baptist Church in 1950. You can't look down on the believers in Rome, think we're better or worse than they are, because our issue is their issue. It is the inability of the privileged and the powerful in the church to embody the gospel's demand to be inclusive. We have to learn to include those without a voice to include those with no privilege, to include those with no power. And you don't even have to mention racism. That kind of complicates everything. In Romans, Paul's gospel deconstructs power. Romans deconstructs privilege. Because if you live the gospel, you turn everything upside down. You, you deny privilege. You deny power. Do we really do that? It is the only path to true unity.
And we need to understand how badly we need unity in a world divided. And second, I want this book to help us live our theology. It's very tempting just to, to, to do the theology of Romans and treat it as some abstract systematic theology. We can reduce it to an exploration of how God can somehow, you know, how does God maintain His holiness and still be full of grace and love? Then we've got to justify sanctification and, and how does He justify us and glorify us while at the same time maintaining His covenants with Israel? But what would the house churches in Rome hear as Phoebe reads the letter? They would hear a pastoral book from someone who loves them, talking to them about power and privilege as they search for peace and unity in an empire. Only when we understand its context will we realize that Paul is arguing that we have to make our own theology a living theology. By this point, he's been on mission to the Gentiles. He's ministered to them for 20 years. And out of that 20-year reservoir comes the book of Romans. Sometimes you'll feel him looking at Jewish believers. Then he's going to turn his head and talk to the Gentiles. Because it's all about a living theology. I love the way he ends the book with his doxology, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 16. He says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ, amen. I'm going to spend the summer in the book of Romans. And we cannot use the summer just to engage our minds. Let your heart be changed as we unpack the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what is Paul really doing here in the book of Romans? He's going among the nations making disciples, teaching them to obey everything as Jesus has commanded. He's doing Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And what is that going to look like here? That's our goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have hope that as we live in a culture that is so angry, so divided, so disunified, that it is our theology which can unite us together as brothers and sisters that we might stand out as something unique in this world that will not happen naturally, but it will only happen as each of us learns to live out our theology. So transform us as a church family on this summer road trip. In Jesus' name, amen.